If you have a Bible with you, please find 1 Samuel chapter 25, our Old Testament reading for this morning. We saw last week that David is in the wilderness, uh, not just a physical wilderness, but a spiritual wilderness. And we saw last week how there are these three great wilderness chapters in the Bible. One, when the nation of Israel left Egypt and they were 40 years in the wilderness. Here, there's a moment where David is about 10 years in the wilderness. And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ was in the wilderness for 40 days. And all three of these work together to help us interpret each other, to help us understand what's going on. And when we read the Bible, not on the first time or the second or the 10th or the 50th, but the 100th time, we begin to understand that the wilderness is a place of, test, of testing. It's a place of temptation. And in this difficult season of suffering and running and hiding, David is becoming, he's being formed into the person God made him to be, into the person he needs to be, to be Israel's king. He's being formed primarily in prayer, in repentance, and he's learning how to entrust himself to God. Now this week, in 1 Samuel 25, we see that when David is in the wilderness, he's running and hiding from Saul, who's trying to kill him, but that's not a full-time job. He's got discretionary time on his hands. There are moments when he's not hiding out in toilets, like we saw last week. What we see this week is that while David's in the wilderness, in those moments where he's not hiding, he finds work to do. And he finds good work to do. You see, in addition to the danger that David is in from King Saul and his army, in addition to that, there's the normal dangers of a wilderness. But over and beyond that, this particular wilderness is a high crime district. Bandits, robbers, brigands. They, they would prey on travelers, attacking people who had money or goods that they could then bootleg. In fact, one of Jesus' most famous parables is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is built on the fact that this particular wilderness is dangerous, and a guy was going through this particular wilderness, and he got robbed, and he got helped by a Good Samaritan. So this has got a long history of being that kind of dangerous, wild, west, lawless place. Now, what's going on with David? Think about this. David is leading his motley crew of 600 men who, if you remember last week, these are not the most savory of characters. Last week we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2, these men are, it says, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter. That's who gathered around David. So what I'm trying to show you is that God was forming David and David was forming his men. He was forming them out of their bitterness into becoming good Samaritans. He was, he was shaping them. He was teaching them. He was leading this ragtag group of malcontents to learn how to turn out of their own bitterness and begin to protect vulnerable people. Remember when Matt was reading, very good job reading, by the way. And um, 
We knew Matt talked like that, used those words, those four-letter words. So we knew he would have no problem. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Maybe. Does he use that? No, don't do it. No, so remember when Matt was reading, remember when Nabal's young herdsman comes running to Abigail and tells Abigail that Nabal has just ticked David off. Remember what he said. This is in chapter 25, verse 15. The men were very good to us, David's men. We suffered no harm and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields. As long as we went with them, they were a wall to us, both night and day. So think of David's company as a kind of unofficial neighborhood watch group. And as ruthless outlaws roam the canyons and mesas, David introduced into this lawless, wild west some semblance of law and order. And there was a tremendous benefit in him doing that to Nabal, a businessman who suddenly stopped having losses because there was law and order. So, It's that time of the year when Nabal shears the sheep. And then, like today, this was intense. It was hard work. It was a lot of it. And so, after long days, long hours of sweat and toil, they would have a feast, a banquet. Tables loaded with food and drink. David sends ten of his hungry men. Remember, they had been living on survival rations. In a wilderness where you're not exactly dealing with a Costco at every corner. So David sends 10 of his men to the party and he says, hey, it's a reasonable request. It is. You might read it as kind of imposing yourself, but culturally this was reasonable. It was natural. He says in verse 10, he says, says, can can we have some food for my men who've been protecting you? And and it, it wouldn't have, Nabal had more than enough. This would not have... Destroyed Nabal's finances. Nabal is such an idiot. I mean, to use the King James. He is a, he's a fool. Look at verse 10. Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? The, there are so many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and I give it to men who come from I don't know where? Look, eight times in one emotional outburst he names himself. I, my, 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 I, I. I mean, can you pile yourself into a sentence any more than that? Is it possible? No. He he is such a fool. But we knew this already. We knew this because there's his name, Nabal, which that's a Hebrew word. And you know what it means literally? Fool. That was his name. Now, I don't know if he got it after high school or when he was born. But at some moment in his life, his name became Fool. But that's not the only way we know. Verse 3. Right at the end of introducing Nabal, it says he was a Calebite. That's a double entendre. Um, The word Caleb, sorry parents who use this for your children, in Hebrew means dog. Now, sometimes in Hebrew it means tenacious like a dog. But generally in Hebrew, um, it doesn't mean a good thing. And it says, Nabal was a Calebite. Now, the first time you read it, remember, the Bible reveals its treasures reluctantly. 
The first time you read it, oh, he's from the tribe of Caleb. But if you know Hebrew, you know, oh, he's from the tribe. And you know the etymology of this word is dog. Um, But by the time you get to the end of the story, you discover that Caleb pisses on walls like a dog. That's what animals do. And so you learn that Caleb is a fool. He's like a dog. Calling somebody a dog in that day and that time was an insult. Um, Even still today in the Middle East or in most Muslim cultures, a dog is not a pet. A dog is not a thing, you know, calling somebody a dog is not like, oh, what kind, a poodle or, oh, I'm a golden retriever. No, it's awful. Dogs are terrible. In fact, remember when David was fighting Goliath, and um, if you've read this part of the Bible, 1 Samuel 17, when David comes out, he's just a boy, and he's pretty. And uh, Goliath says, he sees David, and he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Actually, it's beautiful, the same as about Abigail. We'll come back to that. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? You see, in in a moment of war, this is the way you really cut it, somebody. Now, today we think dogs are cool. But if you think about some cuss words that maybe other people would use, you know there is this SOB. That's that's a 4,000-year-old tradition of cutting at somebody by identifying them with a dog. I mean, we would never make up that as a cuss word today, right? If it was made up today, it'd be like SOB, like what kind, you know, like the cute kind. (laughs) Proverbs 26 verse 11 says, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. So here again, we have fool and dog in the same context. So you see, all of this is adding up. By the time Nabal actually does anything, the narrator's already told you what kind of person he is. You see, in the Bible, a fool is not a harmless simpleton. A fool is a vicious, materialistic, egocentric human being. It's not like, oh, he's a fool. It's, in the Bible, the word fool has a strong moral judgment to it. Nabal is a despicable fool. He's a deliberate liar. And he not only refuses David's men food, which he has more than enough to help them out, he insults them. And so David loses his temper. Not because David is easily ticked off. We've already seen time after time after time, David is not easily ticked off. This is not a moment of peak. David is ticked off because a real act of foolishness has occurred. And so David says, every man strap on his sword. Before morning's light, I will not leave a single one who pisses on the wall. Now, it's a strong statement. It's hard. It's gritty. It's crude. And modern translations are too prude. But if you grew up on the King James, you know it translated it that way. He who pisseth against the wall. Modern translations, uh, probably whatever Bible you've got that's newer than the King James, um, feels too polite to do that. And so they translate it as male or man. But that misses the point. It's not I'm going to kill every man. It's I'm going to kill every dog, every fool, every idiot, every person that is acting in this kind of way. 
It's unfortunate that modern translations are so polite with this phrase because it sets up a pun. Remember, remember what Nabal's servant said. These men were good to us. We suffered no harm and we did not miss anything as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us. Who's the wall that's getting peed on? David and his men. Remember Nabal. This Hebrew word for fool is not just a harmless simpleton. It's it's this thing that David, to express it, reaches for one of the most powerful ways of cursing he can find. Psalm 14 verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, literally, the Nabal says in his heart. There is no God. And his deeds are abominable. You see, this matters because if you're not catching these puns, you're in danger. And this is my key point this morning. You are in danger of overreading David's mistake. Remember the narrator and David and Abigail. And Yahweh himself all agree that Nabal should receive deadly retribution. David's not the only one that says he's got to die. Abigail says it. The narrator says it. God says it and God does it. So David's mistake is not in his anger At the injustice and his deep conviction that it requires, it deserves retribution. This is precisely the point of Abigail's amazing speech to David. In verse 23, she interrupts David in the middle of his warpath. She falls on his face in front of him. Verse 25, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, folly is with him. Verse 26, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, because Yahweh has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil be to you as Nabal. Verse 29, if men rise up against you to pursue you and to seek your life, then your life, one of the most beautiful phrases in the Bible, your life shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of Yahweh your God, and the lives of your enemies, Yahweh shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. David, don't take this vengeance into your hands. It was right to kill Goliath, but it is not right to kill this time. This is her point. And David's response is not, it's to repent, but he does not repent of his wish for vindication and revenge. He repents of taking the revenge into his own hands. Pay close attention, verse 32. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your intelligence, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from 
avenging myself with my own hand. Now, you don't have to agree with this perspective. I'm just saying this is the way the story is being told. It's being told to make a very fine point about where David was going wrong. And then in verse 38, it says that in the morning, before the morning's light, that's what David said, remember, before the morning's light, not one who pisses against the wall will live. And then what happens in verse 38? In the morning, while Nabal was what? While the wine was going out of him. What does that mean he's doing? Abigail said, you know, last night when you were getting drunk, you know that there was a horde, there was an army. And it says his heart died in him. And 10 days later, he died. But just so that you don't read this psychologically and think that he died from like trauma. It says about 10 days later, Yahweh struck Nabal. God killed him. God killed him before the morning's light. David's, David was right and wrong. Where was he wrong? He was wrong in avenging himself, not in his deep commitment to vengeance over injustice. The narrator is so explicit about the cause of death. Yahweh killed Nabal. Yahweh took vengeance. This is hard. This is hard for us. This is way more difficult than coming to terms with your pastor using the P word or the Bible talking like this. This is how do you account for the Bible portraying an angry God? Yahweh, the executioner of Nabal and countless others, right? This is just one story if you've read the Bible. How do we account for that? Well, look, you've got two options. We either reject Yahweh for his violence or we find a way to make sense of it. But what we cannot do is we cannot change the Bible. Like, you can't do violence to the Bible, say it means something it doesn't mean, to turn Christianity into something that feels cuddly. This is all over the Bible. It's clear in this passage. There is no trace of a nonviolent God in the Bible. Such a God does not exist. And if we are honest people, this is so hard. We either reject the Christian view of God for its violence or we find a way to make sense of it. So, on the one hand, reject it. Uh, a famous extreme case, Richard Dawkins, for example, in his book, The God Delusion. One of the key reasons he rejects the Bible and Christianity is this very issue. Here's a quote. What makes my jaw drop is that people today should base their lives on such an appalling role model as Yahweh. And even worse, that they should bossily try to force the same evil monster on the rest of the world. Well, at least Richard Dawkins is reading the Bible honestly. At least he's refusing to flinch and explain it away. The other option, so that's one option... Look at the portrayal of Yahweh, God, in the Bible, and say no. Another option is to try to make sense of it. There are multiple ways of trying to make sense of it. 
Some are helpful and some are unhelpful. One unhelpful way is to try to hold on to Christianity and the God presented in Scripture, but find a way to remove the wrath and the anger and the violence from the portrayal of who God is. One way that some people have talked about this is by saying we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the gospel. That the God of the Old Testament is angry and violent and wrathful, but when we look at Jesus, we see love. But that won't do. Our gospel passage this morning is just one example of Jesus saying, Woe to you, Bethsaida and Chorazin! This summer, seven people from our church stood in Capernaum. And you know what? It doesn't exist anymore. It's rubble. Because when Jesus pronounced woe on it, not long after that, it ceased to exist. He destroyed it. And that's just one example. The fact is, the wrath of God is just as prevalent in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament. In Romans chapter 11, verse 22, Paul writes about the kindness and the severity. He uses both of those phrases right together. The kindness and the severity of God. And then in Acts chapter 5, you have God killing Ananias and Sapphira. And in Revelation chapter 18, you've got God telling all of heaven, commanding all of heaven to rejoice at his just judgment against beastly empires who are drunk on the blood of his people. And that's just a quick, short list. There's so much more. So if you want to be a Christian, if you want to believe in the God revealed in Scripture, if you are like Flannery O'Connor, Christ haunted. You'd like to be an atheist, but you just can't pull it off because Christ haunts you. He won't let you off of it. You've tried, you've tried, you've tried to reject the God of Christianity. It feels hard to you. It feels illogical to you. But you, at, at the end of the day, you're an awful atheist. You just keep failing and giving in to belief. If that's you, if you can't reject God, then how do you make sense of God striking down Nabal? Here's one way to come to grips with it. Evil is real. There is real evil in this world. And some people are so wicked that we must wish judgment upon them. Revelation chapter 6 verse 10. The martyrs, those who've been killed for their faith, are before the throne of God. And they are calling out to God. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood? And they're portrayed in that moment, not as, well, one day they'll learn what love is. One day they'll grow up. No. These are the heroes of the faith in a moment of maturity. Under the Bible's view of God's wrath is this assumption that nothing is powerful enough to change a person who insists on remaining Nabal, a fool, a beast. Christianity does not shy away from the deeply tragic possibility that there might be human beings created in the image of God who through their habitual practice of evil have immunized themselves from all attempts at their redemption. 
They are ensnared by the chaos of violence and they have become untouchable by the love and the beauty and the goodness of God. Look, there are a whole lot of people in our church who are Mennonites. And the Mennonites in our church, you come from the Anabaptist tradition of Christianity. Consistently, the most pacifist tradition in the history of the Christian church. And what the Anabaptist tradition has given the world is a beautiful picture that traditionally, historically, Anabaptists have had no hesitation in speaking about God's wrath and justice. Therefore, we don't have to do it. The thing that grounded the Anabaptist doctrine of pacifism was that God will judge Therefore, we don't have to. It wasn't that at the center of the universe was an ooey concept of love. It was that the historically particular God of the Bible is at the center. And because he will judge, we don't have to. God tells us in Psalm 14 verse 5, The evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread will be put in great terror. Now let's just think about that for a minute. So the Bible says that evildoers who eat up my people like they eat up bread, that's this continual habit of theirs, they will be put in great terror. Now why doesn't it say they will be chastised? They will be like lectured. They will, why doesn't it even say they will be outloved until they change? Why does it say they will be terrorized? Why doesn't it say they will, that love will overcome? Why doesn't it say that they will one day see the truth and they will stop? Now, the Bible's answer is not there comes a time when God gives people what they deserve. That is not what I'm saying. That is not what the Bible is showing here. The Bible's answer, in the words of Miroslav Wolf, a remarkable Theologian at Yale, he says, Some people refuse to receive what no one deserves. I don't deserve grace. Perrin doesn't deserve grace. None of us deserve Christ and the cross and the benefits. And some people refuse to receive it. They refuse to receive what no one deserves. If evildoers experience God's terror, it will not be because they have done evil. It will be because they have resisted to the end the powerful lure of the open arms of the crucified Messiah. So those who would say that violence and judgment is unworthy of God, Christianity says the opposite. Christianity says back to those of us who can't reconcile wrath and love, Christianity says, isn't it a bit arrogant? To presume that our contemporary suburban sensibilities about what is compatible with God's love are much healthier than those of the people of God throughout the whole of history of Judaism and Christianity. There is in this argument for a wrathless God the whiff of wealthy, unsuffering, white Elitism. In a world of real evil, 
and real violence, it would be unworthy of God to refuse judgment. If God were not angry at injustice, what do you say to the rape victim? What do you say to those who suffer genocide? How do you answer real evil if God is not angry about it? If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of worship. I told you this story last week. I want to tell you again. Croatian-born Yale theologian Miroslav Volf survived the terrible ethnic strife in former Yugoslavia. Churches were burned, women were raped, innocents murdered, and before the war, he thought that wrath and anger were beneath God. And he says he came to realize that his view of God was too low. He said, quote, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of a wrathless God was the casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I came. According to some estimates, two million people were killed. Over three million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I cannot imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How does God react to carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the basic goodness of the perpetrators? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came, to, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because he is love. What I'm trying to do is come to grips with 1 Samuel 25. God killed Nabal. So I want you to imagine Abigail. It says she's beautiful. It says she's intelligent. She is by herself in front of who? An amped up group of 400 men drunk on bloodlust. Is this the safe place for a beautiful woman? Down on her knees. I want you to see Abigail there. That is the Lord Christ. You see the word it says of Abigail. Is that she was beautiful. It is the same word used twice before of David. But in this moment David is not beautiful. He's lost all of his beauty. He is ugly. With his own drive for violence. And for vengeance. And for revenge. There's Abigail, solitary, beautiful, kneels in the path, stopping David in his tracks. And at this moment, there is David, empty of his beauty, filled with his ugliness. And Abigail restores David to his true self. How? Well, like our psalm, our psalm we read earlier. Psalm 37. It's the psalm always associated with this chapter. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of them. They will soon fade like the grass. 
Trust in the Lord, right? She sets up vengeance or trust in God. But it's not trust in God that he's going to let it all slide. No, trust in God. Fret not yourself, verse 7, over the one who prospers in his way. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. The meek shall inherit the earth. Nabal dies. David marries Abigail. And guess what he inherits? All that land. That's, that is Abigail in that moment. So here's what I want to say to you. I mean, it's, it's interesting to read this story and to think about evil and violence. But what we've got to do is read this story as a mirror. And you and I both, we need to look in our own lives. And we need to know that when we are choosing revenge and, and vengeance, we are not entrusting ourselves to God. The reason we can be meek, the reason we don't take revenge is not because we believe in a grandfatherly God who kind of jokes everything off. No, it's because we know that God will bring justice. The reason Mir's Law Wolf can forgive the perpetrators is not because he someday finds it within himself to think it wasn't a big deal. No, it's because he knows it's such a big deal, God will take vengeance. And so he doesn't have to. But don't just leave it at the level of genocide. What about the people you work with who get on your nerves? What about the husbands who have abandoned you and the wives who have betrayed you and the parents who have let you down time after time and they ruined you so bad that you can't even get over it as an adult? How can you find your... How can you become meek in those moments? Not by just judoing yourself into meekness, but the way you do it is by firmly entrusting yourself that God will judge. So you don't have to. One of Nabal's foolishnesses was what the servant said to Abigail. He won't listen to anybody. David's glory is that we see time and time again, he listens and he repents. Will you? Will you listen? Will you see Abigail? Will you turn in your heart, like David in that moment, will you turn in your heart toward a crucified God? If you do, he will make you beautiful. He will rescue you from ugliness. He will give you life. And the meek shall inherit the earth.